All right, so I'm looking forward to this series. I hope you are too as we get to talk about Jesus coming back. What a great topic, it's an exciting topic for us as believers. I know for some maybe you don't know Christ, it's, their reaction may be a little bit different. You know, maybe it's skepticism, maybe a little bit of even ridicule or fear. But for those who know Christ, it's, it's the exact opposite. In a world that's lost its mind, this is truth that gives us stability. And we come and it brings us hope and assurance and anticipation. And so I know a lot of people, they want to know how it's going to happen and how soon. And we're going to get into those things into the series uh, as we get later into the series. Some of, some of you know uh, uh, may know that Becky and I just got back from vacation and um, we went down to Branson and had a good time down there. We rented a um, treehouse cabin for a few days. That was pretty fun. And uh, we had a good time, ate too much. I ate too much, I, I need to clarify that. And, um, and we had, a, 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 in fact, if you ever go down to Branson, let me just throw out one place to you. It's not in town, it's a little bit outside of town and it doesn't look like much. A little place called Billy Dale's. And uh, the food's good. I guarantee you, you won't leave there hungry. I mean, I, it, it, they just, I saw, pan, they're known for their breakfast. And so I, I didn't get these, like I didn't order pancakes, but I saw pancakes at the next table. I'm not kidding, that big. They were huge. And, and I had a lot to eat there. It was good stuff. So if you ever go down, you know, try, but you know, we were, we were away. Probably a lot of you weren't aware of that. Some of you may have known we were gone, but you didn't really care where we'd gone. And, <laughs> but, but then there's our kids. Our kids knew we had left. They knew where we went. They knew what we were doing. And they knew about when we were coming back because they're our kids, they're close to us. That's also what happens with those who are close to Christ. We, we know where he went, we know what he's been doing, and while we don't know the date of his coming back, we know some things about his coming back. And we're waiting for that to happen. And we believe that the first step of his return, called the rapture, could happen at any time. It could happen today. And wouldn't that be something? The second, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4a, he said, in the future, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. All who've loved, his, those who've loved, his, those who can't wait for it to happen. You know, when we'll be done, we'll be done with sin and discouragement and grieving and sickness and no more COVID. And more than anything, we get to be with Jesus. No, no wonder we're looking forward to it. And as we see this world around us going sort of crazy, we look forward to the sanity of being with him. So we're going to be talking about that return in this series as we look at the letters to the Thessalonians. We're going to start today, though, by setting the stage, not talking so much about Jesus' return directly, but telling the background story from these letters that will get us to that point where we can talk about his return in the coming weeks. Today we're actually going to skim over the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians. 
telling a story in chapter one about the church itself. In chapter two, it turns to talking about Paul. And in chapter three, it's a little bit about Timothy. They all play a part in the overall picture. And first of all, in chapter one, you've got the Thessalonians. You may remember from the book of Acts, Paul on his second missionary journey, he left Philippi, he comes to Thessalonica. He comes to the city, it's a big city, it's a city of 200,000. It's, it's right on the Ignatian Way, so there's a lot of commerce, a lot of trade going on. People, there's a lot of hustle and bustle. There's also a lot of religion, a lot of different types of religion, a lot of different traditions. Sort of interesting, uh, on our vacation, um, we went, as, if you've been to Branson, you know there's a lot of Christian influence there. But we also went down to a little place, we went about 30 or four. 30 or 40 miles further southwest uh, into Arkansas, Eureka Springs, Arkansas, a little town. It's a, sort of a touristy place. And, but notice a, a, a stark difference. You know, Branson's got this Christian influence. Eureka Springs, it was sort of a way, you know, just a lot of different influences. Well, I, I saw a sign for the first agnostic church of Eureka Springs. First agnostic, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, why even bother, you know? Um, um, there was a lot of spiritism talked about, advertised in, in that town. A lot of different, especially odd for that part of the country, I thought. In a much bigger way, Thessalonica had a wide range of belief systems. You had a Jewish community there. There was a mystery cult there called the Cult of Cabarrus. To attack that cult was considered an attack on the city, and so that could bring violence. The imperial cult existed there in Thessalonica, so they had built a temple. They'd built a temple to, to Caesar there. There was astrology. There were Greek gods. There were Egyptian gods. It seemed like the only claim to truth they were bothered by was the truth. It was a sea of religious pluralism and confusion and immorality. Sounds sort of familiar, doesn't it? And that's where Paul went to start this church. And now he's writing back to the church he, he started and he begins to write. He's in, as he begins to write, he's in Corinth. He's just heard from two of his friends, Silas, and our text is called Silvanus, and Timothy. They've just come back from Thessalonica, and he's responding to what they've told him. Verse 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. We're constantly giving thanks for you guys. And, and here's the reason why, verse three, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brother and beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in which tribulation, in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. 
For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Wow, what a great, great description. This is why Paul's thankful for them. They're known for their work of faith, their labor of love. You get the idea that these guys are putting in a lot of effort. They're not slacking up. They're known for their steadfastness of hope, which tells us they were going through some times that weren't so easy. But there's no self-pity and there's no quit in them. And just like today, the confusion in their culture led some to despair. An archaeological dig in Thessalonica uncovered a first century graveyard. And as they're looking through and digging through this graveyard, they came across some the, these pagan tombstones with, and one on, on one of them was inscribed in Greek these words, Camilla Elpida, Camilla Elpida, no hope, no hope. A city filled with religion, but a city with no hope. But there in that same city was this church, a church with hope. These are people who had found endurance based on hope. They were looking for the coming of the Son of God. You wanna know what keeps you going during difficulties and even persecutions? What makes it possible to watch the world apparently come apart of the seams and yet you're able to maintain a quiet calmness? It's waiting for the coming of the Son of God, that truth. As we see our culture losing hope, wouldn't it be great if what they see in us is a steadfast hope? We should be that place. We should be those people because we have the assurance of knowing Jesus and knowing he's coming back. Paul's like, hey, I, I also remember his choice of you out of his love for you. because We brought our gospel. Thessalonica was a place, that word gospel, that was well known in Thessalonica because it was part of that imperial cult. They had said that the birth of Caesar was the gospel. That's the good news. When Caesar's born, that's the gospel. And then Paul comes along and says, no, oh, we're talking about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We brought this and we saw how that gospel impacted you. He remembered how it came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And God called these people and it resulted in a change of character. They became imitators of Paul and Silas. They, they, they followed that pattern, which may seem a little different to us because we're constantly saying, hey, don't look at men, look to God, look to, follow Jesus, don't look at men. But Paul's saying, hey, look, you look at me, you follow me, you go where I go, you do what I do, you follow what I say, you, 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 you mimic me, and what you'll find is you'll be more like Jesus. Well, what a great way to live, huh? I think these people come along, and even in, in suffering and intense persecution, they handle it with joy. 
it's obvious they've caught what Paul had. And when you think of Paul, you think of someone of great faith, you think of love, you think of endurance, you think of rejoicing in everything, and that's exactly how they're imitating him. Paul's thankful for their character and call. He's, he's thankful for the example they let. He said, you became an example to all the believers. That's something, isn't it? Here, this is the only time in the New Testament that this word example is used to describe a whole congregation. And this is a unique church. They became a church that was a model for others to follow, a blueprint. In all of Macedonia and Achaia, all of Greece, in every place, your faith sounded forth. He says, it went out, it rang out. It's the idea of an echo that keeps going indefinitely. It's like the blast of a trumpet. It's like a clap of thunder rolling across the sky. Paul is so impressed by the way the gospel has gone out from Thessalonica that he uses hyperbole. He says, hey, it, it's gone out in every place. It's everywhere. Your faith has gone out so clearly, he says, that we don't need to say anything. In fact, people are telling us about what happened when we came to you guys and how your lives were changed. So it's like, it's, a, it's crazy. I don't need to say anything because other people are telling me all about it. The people of Thessalonica, how you turned from idols. You turned. And, and that's what has to happen in our lives, isn't it? At some point, we have to turn, right? From whatever it is we've been relying on, whatever it is we've been trusting in. You know, we've talked about it before how uh, so many people will say, I've just, when it comes down to this whole thing about a relationship with God, well, I've just all, I've always believed. And, and that's, that's not the type of belief that we're talking about. See, the Bible tells us we're born in sin, that we're born spiritually dead, that we're hopeless with, without God. And we're walking that way through life until at some point we've come to a realization of the truth of Jesus' sacrifice for us, of our sin and our need of that sacrifice to, for forgiveness of sin. So there has to come a point, there has to come a time where we go, okay, I get it, and now that's what I'm turning to. That's what I'm relying on. That's what happened with the church of Thessalonica. They had turned. They turned from these idols to serve the living God, a living and true God. None of the other religions in town could say that. But the believers could. They had turned to serve him and to wait for his son. And right there is this hint about what we're going to be talking about. His return. And they're waiting for it. The one who was raised from the dead. I mean, make no mistake. This is the historic, crucified risen and ascended Jesus Christ, God's son who delivers us from the coming wrath. I mean, there's no one else. We have people all around the world who, who claim to be the Christ, who claim to be Jesus. No, this, what we're looking for is the one who is crucified, risen and ascended God's son, who will deliver us from that coming wrath. That's who we're waiting for. That's who they were waiting for. That's the church at Thessalonica. People who have been called by God, 
who are known for their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope, who's kept echoing out from their, through their speech and their lives the truth of God's word, who've turned from their sin, who serve a living and true God. That's the Thessalonians. That's why Paul's thankful for them. And you can just tell these are people that are going to be very interested in hearing about Jesus' return. In chapter 2, Paul takes them down sort of memory lane, not in a sentimental sort of way, Instead, he does it to solidify in their minds what they had all experienced together. Back to the days when he came to Thessalonica and how he had served there. And now these young believers that he's thankful for are facing a challenge. See, apparently the news that Timothy brought back to Paul wasn't all good. See, there were those outside the church who were trying to attack Paul and his message. We don't know for sure who these people were, but whoever they were, their goal was to destroy the faith of these believers by attacking the person, the one who brought them the message. So the criticisms and attacks come. Thankfully, these young Christians aren't buying in, but Paul begins chapter two by defending his ministry, not in a defensive sort of way, but with the purpose of establishing these young believers. And basically he asked the church to look back on what they remembered from his time with them. Look back and remember, what did they know about Paul? What did they see in him when he was there? Remember this, he says in verse one, for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. It wasn't an empty mission. Paul's looking at his own ministry. He knows it wasn't empty. He says, hey, remember this. And then verse two, but after, he had already, after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God, to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examined our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we are well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become very dear to us. Hey, he's like, you guys know. Remember when we came? We had already suffered. We had already been mistreated back in Philippi. We came, though, here, and we, we had the boldness in God to share the gospel here, even though we had already experienced all that. We came in, in spite of opposition, in the struggle, and the battle, we were confident in the face of that. And he describes the opposition now that they're facing, the questions that are, coming, that are being brought up. He says, we didn't come with error. We aren't, we aren't teaching some conspiracy theory. We're teaching truth. We didn't come with impurity. We didn't come with, um, uh, by way of deceit. It wasn't our goal to try to trick someone into believing something. No, we've been approved by God. I mean, you can't be unclean in character or motive and be approved by God. 
We weren't following a deluded error. We're, we've been entrusted with the gospel. Our aim was not to please men, but God. You guys know this. God who examines our hearts, he's the ultimate judge. Remember this. Remember what we weren't like? We'd, we never used flattery. We weren't using smooth talk to try to win someone over for self, selfish motives. We didn't, we didn't come with, in pretext. We didn't wear a mask trying to be someone we're not. We didn't do it for greed. We weren't in it for the money. God is our witness who knows our hearts. We didn't seek glory from men. You know, at that time, it was the people who could talk, the orators who were the celebrities of the day. It wasn't rock stars. It wasn't movie stars. It was guys who could talk, who could wow people with their speech. They were flashy, and they could persuade people. They were the stars. But Paul's like that. That wasn't us. We weren't trying to be the stars. Instead, we were gentle among you, like a mother tenderly cares for her children. We, we were there with you. We had a fond affection. We loved you so much. Paul describes his own labor of love. Not only did he give them the gospel, he says, we also gave our own lives. We gave ourselves to you. He says, you remember, remember the honesty and, and, and also remember how hard we worked, verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. This is us. We're, you guys remember, we worked so hard. We labored. We worked night and day. You, you know, contracts of that day, labor contracts, normally they went from sunrise to sunset. Paul's like, we, we, weren't, we weren't working normal hours. We didn't quit at sunset. We went on into the night because we didn't want to be a burden to anyone. You are witnesses to this, and so is God. We did what was right. We worked hard. Verse 11, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Remember how we came and, and, and we, we worked as a father with his own children. He's already said we were like a mother loving their own, her children. Now he's like comparing his ministry to a father with his kids. And, and all the major cultures of that time, the Jewish culture, the Greeks, the Romans, they all understood the role of the father as a teaching role. And how do you teach your kids as a parent? Well, you exhort, right? You doing ex exhortation lately? <laughs> the, the, the idea of exhortation is the general term for an animating address. You, you ever get animated with your kids? <laughs> yeah. I, I remember getting animated with our kids. You know, when you want to get, when you're talking about something serious and you're wanting to get through and you're not thinking they're quite getting it. So an animating address, it's, it's a challenge. It's sort of the, hey, I'm going to get a little bit tough here. I'm going to exhort you. And then he says, I want to encourage you. You guys remember me encouraging. That's the, that's the little softer side. That's the, hey, you can do this. You're, you're doing better. I see changes. 
You're, you're going to make it. I'm with you. Keep going. Encouragement is pointing out the positive. So as a parent, you, sometimes you get a little animated and you're challenging and you're strong. And sometimes you're, you're a little bit kinder, softer, gentler. Is that a word, gentler? You know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think I did. So it's, you're trying to get them to do the right thing. And then sometimes you, you implore. And imploring is, just, is pleading. It's you asking. Do the right thing. You're, you want them, you so want them to do the right thing that you would beg. And what's Paul begging them to do is to walk worthy. Walk worthy. How do you walk worthy of God? He says, well, the idea of worthy has, has to do with weight. He's saying, hey, you live your life in a way that carries weight with God. So here's this church been doing so good and Paul is challenging them to keep going. He's encouraging them not to quit. He talks about how the word of God came to them and how it changed them. That's what the word of God does. It changes people. It changes, it's changed us. It makes us different. It's what it always does when it's taken into the heart and mind. It changes us. Maybe a lot of us are probably familiar with the story of the mutiny on the bounty. You know, the Captain Bly and all that, and you know, and, and uh, gets kicked off the boat with, with some of the other sailors that were with him. Well, what the way Hollywood is presented, it, though, I think is a, gives us the, a little bit of the wrong picture. Actually, there were more guys loyal to Captain Bly than were rebelling against him, and and they went with him off the, into the lifeboat. The guys that were left on the bounty. They were not good guys. They were godless, tough, rotten sailors who were rebelling against the leadership. And they took the ship and they took it to Tahiti where they picked up a bunch of women. And then they went on from Tahiti and they went to Pitcairn where they got on the island and they burned the ship down because they didn't want anybody to find them. And they started living life. But they lived a life of debauchery. They were living, they were drinking all the time. They were gambling. They were fighting. And that fighting grew more and more intense until they started killing each other. And, and the numbers started to dwindle. But there was one guy there, Alexander Smith, who one day is reaching through his stuff in his trunk and he comes across a Bible that his mom had given to him. And he takes it out and he starts reading it. And he's reading it and reading it and it, the truth began to change his life. He's so grateful for that. He begins to take it out and read it to others. The number's smaller now of the people that are left. But those people are listening to God's word. And their lives eventually change. 20 years later, 
when an American ship comes by and actually sort of rediscovers pit cairn again, they come and you know what they find? They find what is basically a little utopia almost. They find a bunch of people there. Now they've grown in number. And now they, they, these are a group of people, they're living very peacefully. They're people who are happy. They are people who love each other. They are people who love God. God's word changed their culture completely. He changed the culture in Thessalonica. He changed us. It's what it does. They became imitators of Paul, even in a time of persecution. He points out, hey, you guys, you're not alone in being persecuted. They killed the Lord Jesus. They killed the prophets. They drove us out. You know, throughout history, Many Christians have known persecution and even martyrdom. The early Christians, we know the stories of, the, of what happened in the Roman Empire where believers were bound up in animal skins and left out in the sun to die. They were thrown to the lions. They were burned alive. They were exiled. And it's not getting better. They tell us that more Christians died for their faith in the 20th century than in any other century of human history. The gospel, it arouses opposition. People don't want to hear the fact that they have guilt before God and that there's nothing they can do about it. So they faced opposition. And some may have been actually accusing Paul of never intending to return to Thessalonica. But he says, hey, I want to come back. I'm so eager to come back. I have a great desire. That word, that word desire is actually translated negatively often as lust. I have this passion to come back to be with you guys. You, he says in verse 19, let's look at it. For who is our hope or joy or crown or exultation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. You guys, you're it. You know, all of us want to know that we're living our lives for something that means something. I think Paul's looking at the church of Thessalonica and he goes, this means something. I think that desire in us is given to us by God so that we reflect on our lives and we start considering how we're we spending them. I mean, that evaluation is going to go on for real someday, right? When Jesus returns. All of us are Christians. Stand before him. We'll have the opportunity to stand and have him evaluate our lives and the thing that's going to count. It's where our heart was and what we did for his kingdom. What lives we were able to impact. We can do incredible things in our lifetime, but what's going to be measured on that day is what the Lord has done through us to impact others for his kingdom. It brings us to chapter three and Timothy's part, and let's just, let's just read it. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, that being away from you guys, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions 
For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor might be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Paul's like, hey, I... I couldn't, I couldn't take it any longer. I sent Timothy. Timothy's, you know, is described as his son in the faith. Somebody he could trust. Somebody he could trust to evaluate things correctly and could bring back and he would tell him the truth. And Paul's like, I want to know. I want to know if you've been disturbed by the afflictions. I want to know if you've been disturbed by the accusations. I want to know where you're at. Is your faith shaken? And now Timothy's come back with good news of their faith and their love. And so Paul's like, it just makes me want to see more. The Thessalonians, they stand out. They stand out as believers for their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope. They reached out from their city with the gospel covered the entire empire. They touched every place in the world they knew. They were a hero church. They were people who would look forward to hearing about Jesus' return. No doubt. And so will we. As we talk in the weeks ahead about his return. Plan on being here. Be here. And, And be encouraged by what's ahead for those who know him. In, in this crazy world that we live in, you want something to give you stability? It's the assurance of Jesus' return. If you don't know him, don't wait. Nothing is guaranteed. Turn to him in faith because of his sacrifice that's death paid the penalty for your sins, turn to him, ask him to forgive you. And if you ask and surrender your life to him, he will forgive you and give you eternal life and the assurance that one day you'll live eternally in his presence. Take that step, take it today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, God, for your goodness, your love to us. Thank you for demonstrating that love and the sacrifice of your son. Giving us the opportunity to know you and anticipate being one day in your presence. God, we thank you for the assurance that brings to us, the calmness, the confidence. You know, time where so many things seem unsure we have you and nothing can shake us help us father to be a church 
that reflects that to the world around us. That people outside the church would talk about what you've done in our lives because of the way we live, because of the things we say, that they would hear about you. God, help us to live faithfully until that day where we stand in your presence. We love you. We thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.